Uh, Take your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 9 this evening. We come to the Word of God this this week. As we have in last week, just by way of review, uh, the Lord had granted Samuel permission to anoint the people a king as they had requested. Again, this was not ideal for God's people. God had always wanted to be their king, and yet they had rejected God. And this was not some new thing that they had done. They really rejected God just a few days out of Egypt. They rejected the manna that He gave them. They rejected His leadership by pillar of fire and by cloud. They rejected God all along the wilderness wanderings. And they reject God even here in 1 Samuel. And God says, give them the the king that they request. But I want to make you know that the king you so desire now, you're going to eventually regret. You cry for a king now, you're going to end up crying about the king later. Remember we talked about how the king, and, and it was in verses 13, uh, all the way down even to verse 16 or 17, he will take, he will take, he will take. He'll take your sons and daughters, and he'll take your harvest, he'll take your vineyards, he'll take your servants, he'll take all these things from you. And that was paralleled or contrasted, if you will, against God, who as their king would be a God that would give and a king that was benevolent. So we come to chapter number 9, and God will now bring or or unite, I should say rather, unite this man that the people have chosen and Samuel together. Verse number 1 of chapter number 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, and the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Well, that sounds like the kind of king we want, doesn't it? The problem is that's not the guy we're talking about. That's his daddy. The the mighty man of power here is not solely a word, that word power in Hebrew is not solely a word that means might or strength. I think one time in scripture it's translated strength, but the word power here just as readily means wealth. So however it's interpreted, it certainly means that Saul comes from a highly influential family. He comes from prestigious Loins. Uh, this guy was not an unknown amongst the Israelites, specifically from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a well-known family. This would have been the sort of uh, Bass family, if you will, in our area. This would have been the Bass family. That was the, the kind of family that Saul came from. Verse number 2, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. If you've been a Bible student for any length of time, you understand that biblical names have great significance. And that is certainly the case here. Saul's name means asked of God. He was asked of God. Uh, They wanted a king. They requested a king. God gave them a king. He is the spinning image of the kind of king that Israel wanted. And in many ways, he reflects the kind of nation that Israel was. Seemingly, and at the first, faithful to God, but eventually falling away from God. He was the king that they 
had wanted, the king that they so greatly desired. The Bible says here in verse number two, he was a choice young man. That phrase means he was in the prime of his youth. He was a young man, a strapping young man. The word goodly here means fair to look upon. He was an attractive young man. Uh, In many ways, though, if you compare Saul to David, many of the phrases and many of the statements made about Saul work accordingly with David. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Bible says about David, and he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy, and that word just means red. He was red-headed, we assume, and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. David was a goodly or an attractive young man. Saul was an attractive young man. It says of Saul, there was not a better looking person in all of Israel than Saul was. It also makes indication that he was an abnormally tall man for a Jew. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. This doesn't mean that he had an abnormally long neck. This means that he was just about head and shoulders taller than everyone. And we have to be careful as we study our Bibles not to just fall in line with what we've always been taught, but really to kind of search the Scriptures daily to see if those things are so. We've been taught a lot of things throughout history that really, if you think about it, don't make a lot of sense. For instance, we talk about the three wise men. The the Christmas song says, We three kings of Orient are. And the Bible simply doesn't state a number. It says that there were three gifts that were brought. The three gifts could have been carried by a whole convoy of people. So we are taught these things. And I want to ask you a question that I'm sure you already know the answer, but how tall was David? The mental image that I suppose all of us have was that he was short. We think we know that because that's the way Sunday school lessons are taught and that's the way that we have traditionally interpreted the story and we imagine this great giant against this little, little boy. But the Bible is simply silent on the matter and I think that if you studied it, you'll find there are a few occasions that seem to indicate David, like Saul, was a much taller individual. For instance, I want you to remember when uh, the Bible talked about Samuel coming to Jesse's household. Do you all remember when he is first introduced to the sons, the likely sons that would be the Lord's anointed? The Bible says, and I want you to remember where David is at this initial meeting. David's not in the room. Where is he at? He's keeping sheep. Okay. So the Bible says in chapter 16 and verse 6 of 1 Samuel... And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, that's the older brother of David, genetically, probably very similar to David, right? Uh, Biologically, they're brothers. So if he carried over some of of his genetics, that would make a lot of sense. One brother's tall, another brother's tall. Okay, so they're brothers. The Bible says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said... Unto Samuel about Eliab, not David, Eliab, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature. So he was an attractive young man, we assume. And also he was a tall young man because it says, don't look at how tall he is. Don't be impressed with that. Don't be impressed with how good looking he is. Uh, For a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on his heart. Now, where was David? 
This is not a passage that says, don't look at Eliab, he's too tall. Find the short kid in the crowd. David's not even there. Okay? So they send and they bring David in. I read to you what the Bible describes him as. Well, he was ruddy with all of a beautiful countenance, goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. If there's one characteristic that Scripture frequently refers to of David, it is of his youth. He's a young lad. Now, I want you to think about this, though. When he goes off to finally meet up with the giant, Goliath, and he's going to go to war, whose armor do they put on David? Saul's. Well, that seems ridiculous to think that you would put a 14-year-old young man in a man who is gigantic for every other person in the army. Why would they put him... In, a, in an outfit that would so put him as a dis- disadvantage. If the armor doesn't fit, why would he go? And you say, well, that's why David rejected it. No, the scripture says, David's response is, I cannot go with these for I have not proved them. It was not that he says, man, these are huge on me. What does it say? I just not used to this. I'm not used to the limitations that the armor's putting on me. And so David put them off. Again, when he gets down there and defeats Goliath, what does he do? He slays him with the, with the rock from the slingshot. And then he takes Goliath's sword, which if built in a, a, a sort of a right comparison to the giant, if it's built to scale, then it would make sense that it would be rather large. And this 14-year-old little boy that we all imagine might have trouble heaving off the head of the giant. You say, okay, well, that's all good and, 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 and that all makes sense. So we just simply have no evidence as to the height or the stature of David. But I will say, David, just from a looks standpoint, is probably much more similar to Saul than we initially imagined based upon all the Sunday school lessons we've been taught. Or else, why didn't they try Eliab's armor? Or else, why did they try one of his other brother's armor? So we find that David may not fit the idea that we always have of him. But Saul, the Bible clearly says, is a good man, a goodly looking man, an attractive man, who is higher head and shoulders above everybody else. Verse number 3. And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, And arise, go seek the asses. Now, I do not believe there's anything in Scripture that is unimportant. And so it is worth noting, when we find David, what is he doing? When we're first introduced to David, what is he doing? Keeping sheep. When we're first introduced to Saul, what is he doing? Finding donkeys. You ever heard the saying, stubborn as a mule? Saul is tracking down a rebellious animal that has lost its way, and David is pictured as carefully tending sheep, protecting them from the lion and the bear. And in some ways, those are reflective of the type of reins they will, they will carry over. Saul trying to unite a kingdom that will eventually be torn away from him. David unites the people, and for much of his reign, uh, leads them in a right and appropriate manner. 
you find that these are not insignificant measures. Saul finding donkeys and David shepherding sheep. Verse number 4. He passed through the Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha. But they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim. And there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. Everywhere they looked, they were not. When they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. We've been gone too long. We need to go home. He's probably really worried about us. We need to get home. Verse number 6, And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Uh, the servant says, hey, there's a guy in town that he's known wide, widely for being a man of God. He is a prophet, a seer. He predicts the future, and maybe he can be of help. Now let us go thither. Peradventure, he can show us our way that we should go. Neither of these men seem to be spiritual in character at all. They're both good men, but they don't seem to be godly men. And you know there's a big difference. You can be a a man of high moral integrity and not be a man that walks with God at all. It seems probably that Saul's a good guy and this servant's probably a good guy. But when they need help finding donkeys, that's when they go to church. I know for you that uh, are not in the ministry and you, you come to church, you think of the church as a place where you can come and you can worship and, and you can uh, praise the Lord, and certainly that is the case. But many people view the church as a sort of insurance agency. Many people only come to church when they need something. We answer phone calls and we have people stopping off the street all the time that will never have any intent to coming into our church. They have no desire to sit through a service and yet they have the audacity to come and ask us for $30 to get them to Oklahoma for the job interview they've already got lined up. Their paycheck clears Friday, but today's Wednesday and they've got to get to their sick grandmother as well. I mean, I've heard the story a hundred times. And one man comes to mind that just three weeks ago, as I witnessed him, when I spoke to him, he didn't know what his answer would be if he stood at the pearly gates and was asked why you should get to heaven. But suddenly, after explaining to him that you need to know Jesus is your Savior, he said, oh yeah, me and Jesus, we're buds. And then we talked for a while, and he says, I just need food. And I said, I will go get you a hot dog from QT. And I will put gas in your truck, but I want you to promise me You will do everything you can to be here on Sunday. Oh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. You know, I've been looking for that guy for the past four weeks and I ain't seen him yet. You say, why do you bring this up? Because many people view the church not as a place to come and serve, but as a place to come and be served. You say, this sounds ridiculous. It's it's, it's ridiculous to me that Saul's servant said, you know, there's a guy, he's a man of God. He's probably got a lot of fish to fry. He's probably got a lot of people to minister to. But man, we really got to find these donkeys. Maybe he can help us find donkeys. And this is the way the world views the church. We've got to be careful that that's not our mentality about the church. That we don't just go to God when we really need Him to answer some dilemmas for us. 
And that's the reality of the situation. Many people do not seek God, do not seek to come into His church, into His house, without a real problem, and they never come truly being able to worship. I hope that's not the way we come to the church. You say, why are you pointing this out? Why are you emphasizing this so much? Because it is this mentality that Saul has in this moment that eventually finds him basically begging a witch to summon the ghost of Samuel to help him in his dilemma. When he didn't get an answer at church, and when God wouldn't answer his problem, guess where he went? Wherever he could get his problem fixed. It wasn't that God was ever the solution. It was that God was just another option. And that's the way many people view church. And it's this, this mentality, this thought process that has him interceding with a medium later on in Scripture. The Bible says in verse number 7, Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man as customary to bring bread uh, or, or some type of gift? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at the hand the fourth part of the shekel of silver that will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come, and let us go to the seer, for he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. It's interesting, if you've studied your Bible for any length of time, there is the principle of first mentions. If maybe you've heard that terminology. What it means is if you're studying a Bible topic, go to the first place in the Bible it's mentioned. This word seer here is used for the first time in all of Scripture. And the Scripture is the best commentary for the Scriptures. You, know, you don't have to go ask what a seer is because, you know what, the Bible does it for you. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. The Bible explains this topic and, and the Scripture does begin to use that term seer more frequently moving forward. But it describes a prophet. It seems as if we study this topic uh, that a seer was a particular type of prophet, meaning... All prophets were not seers, but all seers were prophets. Seers tended to work specifically within realms of visions and dreams and being able to truly see what would be coming in the future. Uh, the way I tried to kind of explain this to myself was, all detectives are police officers, right? But they have a specific focus. But not all police officers are detectives. So could there be a prophet that did not have the ability to see things, but rather was related, uh, relaying messages according to the word of the Lord? Yeah, uh, Nathan comes to mind. I don't think he's ever recorded as being a prophet. But the scripture truly does separate these two into different categories. In fact, the scripture says in Second Chronicles chapter 9, now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, were they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah, and the Shilonite, and in the visions of Ido the seer. You notice the difference. Uh, Ido had visions, thereby making him a seer. Nathan and this other fellow named Ahijah did not have visions, but they were prophets. 
Hope that helps us understand that topic. But really, if you don't go into that deep study, just going to the first mention of something in Scripture helps you to understand what the Bible might mean later on in Scriptures about it. Verse number 10. Then said Saul to his servants, Well said, come let us go. It's a good idea. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. As they went up the city to the uh, as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water. Remember, Saul's an attractive young fellow, and they find young maidens. It seems like a match made in heaven. Uh, they went up this hill. They found young maidens going out to draw water, and said unto him, "Is the seer here?" And they answered them and said, "He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high." place. You're in luck. You wouldn't believe it. He's not usually here, but today he is. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Verse number 13. And as soon as ye be come into the city, ye shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up. About this time ye shall find him. They went up into the city And when they were come into the cities, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came saying. Now I find verse 15 pretty interesting because it says God told Samuel in his ear. Uh, Perhaps this is a very similar style of communication that God had used when he was a young man. You remember when Samuel could hear the voice of the Lord, but Eli could not. Maybe that is a similar style of communication. But what you find contrasted here is the communication style that God has with Samuel versus the communication style that God has with Saul. How did God speak to Saul? The donkeys got out of the pen. Am am I wrong? I mean, uh, Saul seems to be aimlessly wondering and and these series of unfortunate events God is using in his life to direct him to this place where they're looking for the man of God. And with Samuel, God just says, Hey Samuel, tomorrow about this time you're going to see a Benjamite. He's the guy that I'm going to anoint king. It, it is certainly no coincidence that God is so able to speak to one of these men and unable to speak to the other. It's in his ear. He moves Saul by the donkey. He has the right lineage. He has the right look. But what's not mentioned about Saul? At any point, I find no place where Saul's spirituality is mentioned at all. It is as if Saul doesn't even know the Lord. I read even several chapters ahead just to familiarize myself with Saul's reign. Very little is mentioned about Saul truly seeking the Lord at all. Almost seems habitual. Almost like it's just the common practice for him. Now, he has the look, he has the lineage, but does he know the Lord? Does he know Him at all? The Bible says at times the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was able to prophesy. We'll get into that next week. But, but I, I even question whether or not Saul knew the Lord as God has to move him like a chess piece on a board where he tells Samuel, Hey, Samuel. I've got a man for you. You're going to see him tomorrow. You say, well, it makes sense. Samuel was a prophet. Did you know that the Bible says that David inquired at the Lord? David inquired to the Lord and the Lord spoke to him. 
uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Kaliah, and they rob the threshing floor. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines, save Kaliah. This isn't the only time, because there's another time they come back, and the Philistines have overrun the city. They've taken everybody captive. David was greatly distressed. The people sought to stone him. David goes and gets the ephod from the priest, by the way. David doesn't use the priest as a sort of intermediary, between the go-between between he and the Lord. He goes to the priest and asks for the ephod. He gets it, and the Bible says, And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, that is, the Lord answered David, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. The question that I have is, if Saul had truly sought the Lord, would he have been found of him? My answer is, without a doubt. So many people don't truly seek the Lord. So many people aren't really looking to hear his voice. Verse as we keep going down, verse number 16, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin. Thou shalt anoint him to be a captain over my people Israel, that, may, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. And, and if there's one redeemable quality about uh, Saul's reign, is that he does in some way uh, somewhat deliver the children of Israel from the Philistian uh, oppression at this time. He does succeed in that. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, that's a difficult thing to say. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold, the man whom I spake to thee of, the same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. So Saul is just trying to do what the young maidens have directed him to do. He comes into the town and the first person he says, Hey, do you know where the seer's house is? And Samuel looks at him and is like, I am the seer. So God has directed them to this divine appointment, if you will. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place. For ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine asses, they were lost three days ago. Set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? He gives him the first indication that he is the man that will become king. Hasn't all of Israel been crying after you? Haven't they been praying for you? Haven't they been warning you? You're the answer to their prayer. Saul means uh, God gave. Uh, and so we find here that uh, Samuel begins to introduce this concept to Saul. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Seems like he begins in humility here. And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them sit in the chiefest place among them which were bidden, which were about 30 persons. They have a, a little gathering of about 30 people. Samuel put Saul in the chiefest seat. Uh, historically speaking, when you had a feast as a Jew, the person seated to the right of the host 
was deemed the most important person, the sort of guest of honor of the banquet. Here we find Samuel is the host, and he has now Saul sitting right beside him. That's why the disciples asked the question, Lord, when we come into the kingdom, who's going to be sitting on your right and left? Would you allow us to sit on your right and left? They understood that that was a place of honor. And then, if you continue to read, the Bible goes on to say, Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, Set it by thee. Uh, and then you would have a designated portion for this particular guest of honor, and that's what's being referred to here. And the cook took up the shoulder, and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before thee, and eat, for unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. Seems like they had a pretty good talk. Uh, Maybe Saul was sharing some things, or Samuel was sharing some things with Saul. They rose up early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day, that is the rising of the day, the sort of morning time, that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Now, I just want to have some general observations about this chapter as I read it. I want you to see, first of all, this evening, that not all lost things are bad. Not all lost things are bad. Sometimes losing things can be hard. It can be incredibly hard. But sometimes God uses lost things to get us on our way. I can think of people in our ministry throughout the years that have come to the church, and I believe with my whole heart that God put them here for a season. I believe that God put them here to maybe help me, help my wife, help my dad. People that just God anointed. But for one reason or another, maybe they moved on. Maybe they just moved locations, or maybe they, they graduated to heaven. Those losses are always hard, but not all losses are bad. Not all losses are bad. I know sometimes it can be difficult when people lose work. We pray for them. They don't have a job. They're looking for a job. I know those things can be difficult, but God takes bad situations and makes them good. Is that not what Joseph told his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good this day to save much people alive. When at the bottom of that pit, I very much doubt Joseph was thinking, wow, this is good. No, probably not. As he sits down there dejected and rejected by his brethren, and he's being negotiated with the Ishmaelites there, and they're saying, well, how much do you think he's worth? He's a solid 32 pieces of silver. 30 is the most we can give you. And they barter for his, uh, his life, essentially. I don't think he was down there, you know what, this is just a good thing. I see God's plan in all this. But God uses bad things sometimes that we perceive bad things, and turns them for good. Have you ever lost something that you say, oh, I don't know how we're going to make this work. I don't know how it's going to uh, happen. This is absolute disaster. We're headed for catastrophe. But God, in some way, as you've been removed from that some years later, you can say, you know what? God meant that for good. Losses can be hard, but not all losses are bad things. Uh, The loss of the donkeys was not probably good news to Saul's father, Kish, but it was a good thing in this passage. Secondly, not all encounters are merely chance. This is not a chance meeting between Saul and Samuel. In fact, 
God had ordained it. Samuel was aware that tomorrow he would be meeting Saul. Saul was not nearly as aware. In fact, Saul's last idea was, well, it's about time we be getting home. We've looked just about everywhere for these donkeys. We just need to probably go home. Dad's probably getting worried. We can't find them anywhere. And it seems like a harebrained last attempt idea that the servant says, but I know there's a man of God that might be able to help us. And what seems to be chaos and what seems to be impromptu decision-making, God somehow providentially unites Saul with Samuel. Have you ever considered that tomorrow you may meet someone by divine appointment? Have you ever considered that? Maybe God will bring you across the path of, uh, of someone who just needs to, an encouraging word. Maybe you could be the Barnabas in somebody's life that says, Hey, I know you've been going through it, and I just want you to know I've been praying for you. Maybe you could be the one that sends the encouraging text message to the nursery worker that says, Hey, I know nobody ever tells you thank you, but you know, my kids love it when you're in the nursery. Thank you. Maybe you could be the person who introduces someone to the gospel message. And by the way, the gospel according to America is not the gospel according to the Bible. Many people in America believe that being a Christian is good enough to get you into heaven. Friend, Christianity don't get you into heaven. Faith in Jesus Christ does. Most people are so amazingly confused that Brother Marshall can testify to this. If you ask them how they're getting to heaven, they say, oh, I have no idea. And then you witness to them, they're like, oh yeah, I know that. Most people are so confused. Maybe you could be the person tomorrow that by divine appointment of God would introduce somebody to Jesus Christ and what the real biblical gospel is. But if we think that every meeting from the grocery store clerk to the waitress we have at lunch, if all that's chance and it really doesn't matter, we'll never look for divine appointments. God can have you in what seems to be, from your perspective, a chaotic moment of time really puts you in the right place at the right time. Not all uh, encounters are merely by chance. And then number three, not all arrangements must be made afterward. Now, you can think what you want to about this. I find this pretty interesting. I think it's down in verse number 23. The Bible says that Samuel, before meeting Saul, had prepared a feast for him. Seemingly inconspicuous, nothing amazing about that. What it tells us is that even prophets lived by faith. I mean, God had told him tomorrow he would meet Saul, but Samuel goes out of his way to make arrangements so that the feast is prepared and that this guest of honor's portion is designated for him. Samuel had to take God's word and say, okay, if this is going to happen tomorrow, I'll have to make arrangements for tomorrow to come to pass. You say, what does that matter? It indicates to us that all Christians in all times had to live by faith. It didn't matter if you knew tomorrow, you live by faith. Frankly, if you have the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, you know the future. You're more qualified than most prophets. And yet we still live by faith because faith at its simplest is accepting God's word that it will come to pass. We live by faith. And I like how Samuel makes arrangements and he makes plans while he's walking in the middle of God's will. He's discerning and making plans 
for the future. Sometimes people act like planning is the enemy of finding God's will. They are not enemies. They're working together. The Bible does not frown upon plan making. I read a story uh, earlier about a, a craftsman who was well respected within his community and, a, uh, a, and an author who was looking for some inspiration. The author had uh, kind of encountered a sort of writing block and so the author goes to the uh, craftsman's workshop and he sees there all the tools and all the instruments and he watches as the craftsman goes to work and he's just so impressed by it all and he's just taking in the sights and the sounds and eventually he notices off in the corner a big rock, a, a stone taking up much of the man's workshop. He says to the uh, craftsman, he says, the author asks, what is that big stone? What are your plans for that? Well, the sculptor just looks back at him and says, well, I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still making plans on that. The author, kind of shocked by the answer, looked at the sculptor and he asked him, he said, uh, well, you mean to tell me that you don't plan your work ahead of time? He says, uh, I've changed my mind several times today. Well, the sculptor quickly looked back at him and said, well, that's all well and good with a four-ounce manuscript, but we're talking about a four-ton stone here. And that seems to help us understand that the weightier the matters, the more planning ought to be involved. The weightier the matter is, the more carefully you should plan. I've watched people move away from a good church, move away from a body that loves them and a place that's good to them for like seeming two weeks notice and 25 cent raises. If you're going to move your family away from security and infrastructure in a spiritual sense, do so, but do so very cautiously. Do so and take much planning. In fact, the Bible says, consider the ant thou sluggard, who had no ruler or overseer, still makes plans, he gathers his food. Make plans, that's good. But the weightier the matters are, the more deliberation ought to go into it. And if God doesn't give clarity, then you ought not pursue things, but, but certainly make plans. So we find that not all lost things are bad, not all encounters are merely chance, and not all arrangements need to be made afterward. You can be planning, and that can work in tandem in conjunction with God's will. And then I want to give you three just very practical biblical tips for hearing God's voice in your own life, okay? How to hear God's voice. And by this, I do not mean hear God's voice in your ear. I do not mean that He's going to stand at the foot of your bed and swing His fiery sword and tell you what direction you should leave your driveway in the morning. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to understand God's leadership in your life. Number one, pursue God instead of answers. In our culture, God's will has become like this very mysterious thing and and people talk about it as if it's this undiscernible and unknowable thing. But God to know God's will and not to know God is not only an impossibility, it is an unfulfilling substitute. Just to simply know what His plans for you are, but not to know the one who made the plans. Moses, when given the opportunity to go into the promised land, but knowing that it would be an angel that would be sent with him instead of God, you know what he says? If you're not going with us, we don't want the promised land. The, the plan is good, but the plan without God is not. 
Seek to know God rather than the answer you're looking for. You will know the answer if you learn God. If you come to know the Lord, He will not leave you out high and dry. So as you're discerning God's voice, pursue God instead of the answer. Secondly, be listening even when you're not looking. And certainly, if I was making a sermon title slide for that, we'd have the monkeys on the screen. See no evil, hear no evil. But, but you've got to be listening for God's voice even when you're not looking for God's will. Most people look at God's will as if this thing I only look for when I need to know it. God's will is something that's discerned and followed daily. When the disciples, the Bible in the book of Mark tells us that the disciples that they're calling, I believe it's Peter and Andrew, they're casting their nets. They're in the active pursuit of fishing And Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The Bible says they leave their nets and they follow after him. Were they looking for God's will? No. Were they listening for his voice? Yes. He goes on down the beach a little ways and he comes across Peter and John. They are mending their nets. And the Bible says, follow me. That's what Jesus asks them to do. Follow me. They get up and they follow him. They leave their boat. They leave their nets. They leave their father, Zebedee, there in the boat. They leave it all to follow after the Lord. Did they wake up that morning looking for God's will? No. But were they willing to hear God's voice if he, if he called them? Yes. Matthew, who had worked all that time to get to the position of the tax collector, where he was, sitting at the receipt of custom, he had to bid with the Roman government on that territory. That is a a once-in-a-lifetime gig, though not an ideal one, socially speaking, an ideal one financially speaking. If he loses this position, he is not going to get it back. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. What does he do? He rises up and follows him. Did Matthew wake up that day to collect taxes or follow God? Collect taxes. But while he was sitting there, when God's voice spoke, he listened. The point is this. God's voice may come at inconvenient times. God's voice may come even if you're not looking for it. You know, teenagers, I can't tell you how many teenagers have gone gone off to youth camp with the expectation that five days later they're going to come home and continue life like they've always done. Yet when they get there and they get under the preaching of God's Word, God calls them to full-time ministry. Did they go to youth camp looking for God? Probably not. They were more looking for girls, honestly, if we were being very honest. But when they got there, did God speak and they obey? Yes. For some reason, when we become adults and these very refined and older Christians, we stop listening to God's voice. And we assume that we don't have to listen because we're not looking for His will. Again, the will of God has no expiration date. You know when God appeared to Moses? Eighty years old. Most of you are still qualified. Eighty years old. If you're not looking for God's voice, at least still be listening for it. And if God calls, you would be wise to listen. So pursue God instead of answers. Be listening even when you aren't looking. And then we close. Be quick to deal with sin. If there is one thing that limits and prohibits God's voice in a Christian's life, it is the presence 
of unrepented sin. To contrast David and Saul's lives, both of them are miserable failures. In almost every category. In fact, if you compare Saul with David, David does not compare favorably. Because I never find where Saul was a murdering adulterer. The one significant difference and the thing that God said of David that made him a man after his own heart was that David would repent at the ready. He was a man willing to repent. But in Christian culture today, repentance or living a life of righteousness is absolutely unpopular to even speak about. Three days ago, or I guess four days ago, a sermon posted to a very famous preacher. I will not say that preacher's name out loud because I'm not in the name-calling business. Uh, I will say that his church is in Houston. It used to be in a stadium. He smiles a lot when he preaches. has curly hair and a goofy smile. His wife's a better preacher than he is. He preached a sermon. It was actually December 31st, but because of the way the television broadcasts work, I just looked at his most recent, recent sermon, okay? I was not going to find the target sermon so that I could criticize him. No, I went to his most recent sermon and I found the transcript of it. This was the sermon posted three days ago. The name of the sermon was, Your Destiny Outweighs Your History. Okay, that was the name of the sermon. I'm going to read you just the second paragraph of the sermon. The first paragraph had uh, illustration, but here's the second uh, paragraph so you kind of get the idea for the sermon. These are the things in your future God has already ordained for you. Promotion, healing, divine connections. They're not just going to tip the scale, but they're going to far outweigh the disappointment, the pain, the loss. This is where faith has to kick in. I'm at a deficit right now. Gone through this struggle. I had a setback. I'm not denying that, but I know this. God is still on the throne. What He has in my future is going to far surpass what I'm dealing with now. Now, if you knew nothing else of the sermon, I would think we could all agree that that sermon and the sermon title deals with the destiny or the direction of a Christian's life. Can we all agree on that? I mean, the sermon's title is, uh, uh, what is it? Your destiny outweighs your history, okay? That's the sermon title. I looked at some key themes throughout the sermon. Four times the word or concept of promotion is introduced. Three times healing. Six times restore or restoration. Thirteen times favor. Those are the major themes throughout this 27-minute sermon. And he's talking about discovering your destiny, finding God's will for you, and finding God's plan, okay? You know what words are never mentioned? Sin. Repent. Righteous. I take that back. Righteousness is used once. It's in reference to a verse. Here's the verse. He misquotes it because he uses different translation. Proverbs 4.18. The path to the righteous gets brighter and brighter. I do not use this illustration to just totally throw stones at Pastor Ost... Oh my... (laughs) I use this to suggest to you that the greatest... The greatest obstacle in discovering your destiny is not people not willing to look for it. That's not the biggest problem. People are looking for God's will. People are looking for this life, that they this sort of utopian view of Christianity. People are looking for that. So the idea that he is suggesting that God's got it, just 
you know, you're the, just the cheese and you're, you're the mouse in the maze looking for the cheese at the center. I mean, that's not what he says, but that's the overall theme of the sermon. If that's the problem, then I'm misreading my Bible. Because what I find in Saul's life, you know what the Bible says of Saul? The Bible says that the very reason he went to inquire at the witch at Endor, the Bible says, And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, what do we find? A guy looking for God's will. Looking. Because he's not willing to repent. He's not willing to truly get right with God. But he's, he's wanting direction in this battle. He's doing the very same thing he did when he went to Samuel for donkeys. He says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. He had done the triple crown of Christian discernment, and God wasn't speaking. Why? Because he wasn't righteous. He wasn't genuinely living for God. He, he wasn't trying to be right with God. He was trying to win the battle. That's it. And yet David, when he sought God, he often revealed himself to him. But the time when God could not speak to David, the prophet Nathan had to. Do you remember that? And he said, thou art the man, David. You're the one that's slain your neighbor's sheep. The one that he treated so kindly and so fairly like one of his own children. You had all the sheep of the pasture and you took his own sheep. And as soon as he hears those words, the Bible tells us that David repents. In fact, Psalm 51, the, the overall concept of it is, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. You know what he goes on to say? Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thine Holy Spirit from me. You know why he says those words? Because throughout this past few moments, when he has not been living for God and his heart's not been right, he has felt a great divide between he and and the Lord's leadership in his life. He says, Lord, if there's one great thing that I can't handle, it's the idea that I am not right with you, and you're not leading with me, and you're not with me. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thine Holy Spirit from me. The Lord loves righteousness, and the Lord is willing to lead the righteous. So if that is the case, and you are a Christ follower, you are someone who wants to live for God, be quick to deal with your sin. Repent of it. Get rid of it. Because the Bible says in Psalm 145, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. To all that call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. The Bible is very clear you have unconfessed sin in your life, you will not have a direct link with the Lord. Isaiah tells us there's a group of people that are going through all the services. Isaiah chapter 1. They're going through all the services and all the feasts and they're doing all the, all the things. And yet the Lord says, they are an abomination to me. I cannot away with it. Uh, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be made white as wool. We find that God loves righteous people. We're not righteous because of works that we do. We are only made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And every time we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I have sin in my life. Would you forgive me of that sin? It restores the connection between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit 
of itself. And so we find, pursue God instead of answers. Be listening even when you aren't looking. And be quick to deal with sin.